Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to Step Into Scripture. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife and a mom of seven. Alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving King Jesus as a church planter, a Bible teacher, an author, and an advocate for all-in family ministry. I'm passionate about making Christ and His church famous, and I'm also passionate about helping people develop a commitment to reading God's entire word, Genesis to Revelation, as an ongoing discipline and rhythm in their lives. That's the purpose of this podcast, to help people connect with God's word, the beauty of its completion, of the connections that we find there, the centrality of Christ that we find there, the insight into the character of God that we find there. And in this season of the podcast, season three, the very practical application that we find there, because we are digging into Song of Solomon. We're in a series on marriage. This is a six-episode mini-series. We are in the final episode of this now, episode six, where we are going to be unpacking the last chapter of Song of Solomon, and that's chapter eight. I am thrilled that I have my friend and mentor, Allison Harris, here joining me for this whole season. (laughs) Allison, if you don't mind, share a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, this is the last of this this series on Song of Solomon. Um, my name is Allison, and I've been married for 40 years, dated Jerry for five years before that. Um, so yeah, I've I'm, I'm been in ministry all those years, and I'm still here to tell about it. So, you know, that's kind of a... I, I'm proud of it. I have four awesome kids. I have three Two daughters in love, one son in love, and I have five perfect grandchildren. (laughs) Now, Allison undersells herself a little bit here when she introduces herself. So I'll just say some things to add on now that we are in the final episode of this season. Allison and Jerry have led for I don't know how many years a multi-site megachurch called The Crossing It spans three states in Mm -hmm. the Midwest. How many campuses? We have 11 campuses in Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois. And we just recently, in the last two years, did a succession plan where now Jerry is the teaching pastor and Clayton Hensel, who we raised up for 18 years, is the senior pastor. That's incredible. We just did 25 years there about two months ago. And I know we don't want to make it all about numbers, but we count people because people count. People How many count. people are part of the crossing? Uh, this past Sunday, uh, we had, we have to be very accurate, we had about uh, 6,800 in person, and we had about 4,000 online. Incredible. So, yeah. so I just want you to see the reach of what Allison has stewarded the longevity of ministry, the faithfulness, so much about you is completely inspiring to me. This is not at all related to Song of Solomon, but I'll just tell it real quick. (laughs) At a crucial time in our church's history, which is not that long, we have a nine-year-old church that my husband and I planted in 2014, and four years into this, in 2018, we were at a critical moment where we were building a building, which was a major faith step for us at the time. Um, It was way out of our comfort zone. And you and Jerry brought us to Illinois, took us on a tri-state tour of all the campuses. You saw more corn than you ever thought you ever wanted to see in your whole life. There was a lot of corn, (laughs) but it blew my mind. And I just had never known growing up 
here where I have in South Carolina where there aren't really large churches like that. I had never known that ministry could look like that. I had never known that a church could be so impactful on such a wide scale and be not compromising, true to the gospel, true to the teachings of God throughout his word. And that was just a huge inspiration to us, but also probably just a critical moment in the vision that that we were realizing that God had given us. And you and Jerry both spoke such encouragement into us. In the last episode, you talked about the importance of the words, I see you. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember very vividly us sitting in the car with you guys and Jerry speaking into my husband, Matt, and saying, I see in you. I see in mm-hmm. you that you have this potential for leadership and for impact for the kingdom and that God's really going to honor that and do something amazing with it. And so that has been um, just a time that I look back on as as a pivotal moment for us where we went, yeah, God's God's going to do something mm-hmm. big here. And he absolutely has. And we are just forever grateful to you guys for being part of it and showing up along the way to continue to encourage, to spur us on and to set the example for us of what it looks like to keep going for the long haul. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for asking. Thank you. All right. Last episode here, we have gone through Song of Solomon chapter one, where we talked about dating and courtship. Song of Solomon chapters two and three, (laughs) where we talked about engagement, that phase of the romantic relationship. In Song of Solomon chapters 3 through the beginning of chapter 5, we talked about the wedding ceremony and the wedding night, the actual act of consummation. And we noted that this is the centerpiece of the book of Solomon, which is framed uh, on reverse parallelism, a chiastic structure. In episode 4, we talked about Song of Solomon chapter 5, where we saw marital problems that can arise and resolution and the intentionality that's Mm -hmm. required for us to walk out reconciliation and not just throw our hands up when the happily ever after doesn't just automatically fizzle. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And then in our last episode, we talked about Song of Solomon chapters six and seven, which gave us a view of some longer term faithfulness and, and what it looks like to keep the romance alive Mm -hmm. for the long haul. And now we are going to move into this last episode where we're going to talk about teaching our children. So in chapter 8, something surprising happens. We find the topic that has been very much centered on the passion of this relationship. Even through the problems, there's still been a focus on the passion. The passion overcomes the problems. I mean we see makeup sex in the Bible. Right, we sure do. But then we come to chapter 8, and while the passion is still going on, we find aspects of discipleship. And that's surprising to me because, like we noted in the beginning, Song of Solomon is not a book about theology. Right. It's a poem. It's got a lot of practical life application, which is true of the wisdom literature in the Bible. It's not... Uh, overtly glorifying to God or about Mm -hmm. the character of God. You know, you read Proverbs and see that you're better off to live on the corner of a house than with a nagging woman. 
who right. sounds like a continually dripping faucet. I mean, nothing about that is theological or overtly glorifying to God. It's just real life information. It's real practical, though. Real practical. <laughs> and, and even though Song of Solomon is written in this beautiful poetry, we're still finding it is very practical application for our lives. So now we turn toward a concept that feels more biblical, the idea of discipleship, but it's actually completely fitting because that's where discipleship plays out is in our real world relationships. And that's what we've been reading through this, a real deal relationship. So Allison, if you want, kick us off. Let's start reading through chapter eight because our goal for this season is we are going to read every chapter, every verse of Song of Solomon. And that works with your steps into scripture. Yeah. Every verse. All right, here we go. Chapter 8, 1 through 4. I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. Then if I met you outdoors, I could kiss you, and no one would look down on me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, and she would instruct me. I could give you spiced wine to drink, fresh juice for my pomegranates. His left arm would be under my head and his right arm around me. I warn you, daughters of Jerusalem, not to waken or stir up love until it wants to arise. So I love this, these verses. This is a reminder, again, culturally, you can, uh, in that time, you could hang out with your family. You could give them a hug. You could have your distant cousin from Africa could come visit, and he could stay in your house and eat at your table and all that kind of thing. But if he's not related to you, he's not near you. Bottom line. Yeah. So try not to take these verses and go weird on me with them. Just understand that that was the culture. When you understand the culture, you can understand the, the background of the poem. And in verse 3, she just wants him to touch her. She, could they just be close for a few minutes? And I love that. I'm, I, you know, I, I just, it's so true. Um, and then daughters of Jerusalem, she warns, um, not to awaken or stir up love until it wants to rise, because once it arises, then she's in this tension. Yes. And he sees her and she sees him, but the tension is still there because, you know, it just is. Yeah. So. I love that she, you know, says, I would bring you to the home of my mother who taught me. Like, mm -hmm. there we're seeing this intentional discipleship that's been poured down into her. Her mother has taught her how to be a wife, how to interact in a romantic relationship with a man. And this is something that we need to emulate in our homes. I've got six daughters, one son, one daughter who's engaged, one who's dating, two more who are teenagers and will be coming up into that time in the next couple of years. And then I've got two young daughters also. And something we got to square with moms is that while conversations about how to interact with with a man with a boy might be uncomfortable they might cause your kids to squirm or even uh, recoil we got to have them because we can't rely on the culture to teach our daughters how to interact with boys or with men how to walk out dating relationships or how to function in marriage I'm now at the time with my oldest daughter where we're having very frank discussions mm -hmm. about sex inside of marriage because very soon she's going to be entering into that season. And, and the culture around us will mess our kids all up. We talked a little bit about that in 
episode one of this season, we are inundated with images of what sex and romance should look like. They're on social media. There's a huge problem in our society of pornography that really skews people's view of this. So we've got to be very intentional about teaching and discipling our girls in what this looks like to walk out. And even as this woman is repeating the refrain that we've seen throughout the book, don't arouse love until it so desires, she's charging the daughters of Jerusalem who have been the chorus of friends in this after she says, my mother taught me, now I'm charging you. And that's what discipleship looks like is we're receiving it and we're handing it down um, to those who are coming up under us huge value in that that we find in the book of Song of Solomon. I want to speak just a second to the, if anybody is watching this, and you're a first-generation Christian. Yeah. And you don't have a a framework in which we're talking. Yeah. And first off, I honor you for that. I respect you for that. Um, And we can change that. Yes. Um, And that's what Scripture's for. And that's what a mentor is for. If, you're, if your daughter is coming into that stage of life where you're like, oh my gosh, what the heck am I going to do? Find somebody that can help you find out what to do and study scripture so that you can teach her and you can talk together. Yes. I mean, I totally agree. My daughters are, um, I have two daughters and two daughters-in-law and they're my friends. They weren't always my friends, my daughters. We, I had to be mom, you know, be mom. Don't first priority be mom. But then when they're when when they need you when you when you've gone through the four stages of parenting, that uh, and you're in you're in the consulting phase. Yes, uh, that's when you get to be a friend, if you want it, and you can speak frankly to each other. Yeah. But if you're still in the parenting part, that's your first priority. And if you're a first generation Christian, we can find scriptures to help you manage those things. Yeah. And, you know, we'll lean on some of those just right now, even in the New Testament. We're reading this Old Testament poetry, but we have New Testament writings about how the older women need to be teaching and discipling Mm -hmm. the younger women. Titus 2, 3, and 4 is one of those. It says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they, remember, we're getting the teaching from above and then we're passing it down. Like the woman got it from her mother and then she charges the daughters of Jerusalem. Then they can urge the younger women, here you go, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And I used to think that's strange that it says that women need to be taught to love their husbands and children. That seems kind of duh, right? Mm -hmm. That's our default setting that obviously we love our kids, we love our husbands, But what we've seen as we've studied this book is, no, there actually does need to be some intentionality around Mm -hmm. this. The happily ever after does not automatically play out. It didn't in this Bible account, which is a beautiful picture of a relationship. Mm -hmm. This is like the best romance ever that we've been reading, but even they required intentionality that they didn't start with about, well, she did, about loving her husband well, Mm-hmm. not neglecting him, not being self-focused, not putting um, her clean feet above her husband who wanted to come in the door. Right. Being a connoisseur to what your spouse needs. Yes. Yes. And I'll just mention here that I think the phrase that she starts out with, 
you know, I wish you were my brother so that I could embrace you out in public. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, wasn't accepted. Totally reminded me of the movie Sweet Home Alabama. (laughs) One of my favorite. Yes. So I could kiss you anytime I want. Why do you want to marry me for anyway? (laughs) I love that phrase. Yes. So let's keep going. We're reading just straight through chapter eight. The friends now show up. Who is this coming from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? We've seen this, who is this phrase a couple times in here. We saw it when the wedding processional was coming. Mm -hmm. Who is this coming up on Solomon's chariot? And I love the picture that we see of it here. They are well into this marriage. They are in a long-term, faithful, committed relationship where they're learning more and more about each other. And here they are just at this place of peace with one another. They're coming up and she's leaning on him. And Mm -hmm. she says, under the apple tree, I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave birth to you. So perhaps a setting that has some sort of significance to this family. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's saying, hey, look, there's where your parents met. And Mm -hmm. now that's where I'm engaging in romance with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would fit more culturally. It's not, you know, usually in that culture, they they stayed very tribal, very much together. Yeah. And so she continues, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Great description here of jealousy. Godly jealousy? Yeah. Yeah. In a marriage. Yeah. Because God is jealous for us. Yeah. And and he spends much of the New Testament talking about how he is God. I mean, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other above yes. me. He is he want he is jealous for us. In this type of and since marriage is an is a uh, a mirror image of what his relationship is with us and relationship with the church, um yeah, he was, you know. So a godly jealousy. Yeah, uh, so a, uh, a good jealousy. Yeah, a good type of jealousy. Just like we talked earlier in this season about, you know, we see all this language about how she's so attracted to him, and that's not a bad thing, that's mm-hmm. a good thing. I think the same thing goes for jealousy here. She says, jealousy is as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a fire. That's not bad because God's plan is that we are in covenant, monogamous, faithful, long-term mm-hmm. relationships. Yeah, we're going to be jealous if someone else Right, you don't mess around. with my man, and you don't mess with my wife. I mean, 100%. you know, absolutely. My husband and I joke about he has an assistant, and it is his mother, mm. because he says, my wife is too jealous for me to have any other woman <laughs> as my assistant. And that's true. It's funny because it's true. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a jealousy there, and he feels the same way about me, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. Uh, I think he would maybe be concerned if I wasn't jealous and didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. So she continues, Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And this is incredible that at the end of this book, deep into their relationship, years into this relationship because we're this poem is portraying season after season in this relationship that's still the passion is that if you put all the wealth in the world in front of me and said trade this for the love you have 
that would be junk to me. Mm-hmm. I don't want it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and people like me, we've been married a long time now. So when I, when I read, no amount of water can quench love and torrents cannot drown it, I'm like, the torrents of life, the torrents yes. of, of issues that we've gone through and the fires that we've had to put out and, uh, and how it can divide you personally, yes. uh, professionally, uh, emotionally, mentally, physically, in every way possible. But yet, at the end of the day, no amount of water can quench love and torrents cannot drown it. That's your goal. Yeah. In reality, it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, our divorce rate is one for every two, and that's including Christians. Yeah. And so it doesn't always work that way. Right. But that's the goal. Yeah. So if you want a goal to hit, that's, that's what we're going for. Right. Yes. So let's go on to verse eight and nine. Um, and it says, we have a little sister. Her breasts are still unformed. What are we to do with our sister when she's asked for in marriage? If she is a wall, we will build on her a palace of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. This is what Tina was talking about in raising up the next generation. Um, to raise it up in a godly way. Yeah. Uh, and the sins of the father and the mother do pass down, but they also don't pass down. When you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, just because what happened to you or what you did doesn't necessarily mean that that will happen again. And a lot of that is controlled because... We help a wall. We help her become a wall. If she is a wall, what that means is if she is strong, if she knows who she is, if she is, uh, you know, it's it's attractive, it's strong, it's confident, and it's it wears the test of time. Yeah, and it's a boundary. Mm-hmm. Like you're not just getting in here that mm-hmm. easily. And I definitely think that that how we were raised and our experiences determine those things in us, whether, whether she is a door or she is a wall. If you didn't have that teaching, you mentioned first generation Christians. If you didn't have a mother in your life who taught you how to walk in a moral relationship romantically, how to wait until marriage, how to set the right boundaries, then you don't just automatically know these things. Correct. Our natural self is certainly going to tend toward what is gratifying to our flesh, mm-hmm. which is premarital sex. Right. So if she's not a wall, if she's not guarded, if she's not strong, if she's a door, meaning she's pretty open, you know, she she How is, many people are walking through it? Right. Yeah. She's freely giving herself. It's easy to get in with her. Then it says, we're going to enclose her with panels of cedar. We're going to form a protective barrier around her because not all girls know to do that. Right. So we have to train them this up. This is also, a, uh, to me, now remember, this is poetry. So I could be totally wrong here. Give me a little grace here because it's poetry. Yes. So in in verse, when it says, enclose her with panels of cedar, first off, the cedar of Lebanon was an honor. It was, yeah. a, it was a luxury. If you'd had it a bad start, we can always make a turn. Yes. And it can the panels of the cedar that can be, come around you can be a great thing. Yeah. So there is redemption even in this poetry book from thousands of years ago. God is a redemptive God who understands romance 
and sex and marriage and trying to pass that on to the next generation. Yes. He really does. Well, and I love the idea here also that that all women just aren't alike, you know. Right. If she's a wall, then we're going to treat her this way. If she's a door, then we're going to treat her this way. I mean, like I said, I have uh, four women in my house at this point, two who are legal adults, my two oldest daughters, and two who are teenagers and who are quickly moving into that. And my oldest, you met her on episode two of this podcast. She is very shy. She doesn't have a lot to say. Sitting down and reading Song of Solomon together was nerve-wracking for her because she's a wall. Uh, But then I have another daughter, my second oldest, who's getting married sooner, and she is more of a door. She's much more easily approachable. And I don't mean that in any way that she's not uh, chaste, but she is just more open to relationship and she is in a relationship but but my oldest it was it was very hard for her to give her heart away to a man and she has and now she's engaged but that was not her default setting she is not just readily accepting of that kind of thing she's much more suspect she's much more guarded Whereas my second daughter, she's 18 years old. She cannot wait to get married. She is doing everything she can to just put it off a few more months so that her older sister has her moment in the limelight. And then she's like ready to move into the next phase of a relationship as soon as possible. So even, even girls who live in the same home and have the same upbringing are differently inclined And so we have to strengthen them differently. We have to disciple them differently. We have to give them the right time and resources that they need so that they can be successful in these relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now she goes on and says in verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts are towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal, Haman, and let out his vineyard to his tenants. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver, but my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. So here, this is again weird. This is poetry and context and culture that sounds unfamiliar to us, but the idea is ownership. Solomon or whoever the the actual man is being represented in this poem has property that he owns and he does with as he pleases. Leases it out, makes a profit from it. She recognizes that, that she has assets. Number one, she's a wall. She has reserved those assets. We saw that in the very beginning when the man was celebrating their wedding night. He says, she's a garden locked up. She was a wall, but now she's opening the door to me and they consummate the marriage. So in the same way, she has assets and she has chosen to give them to him, to use them to satisfy her husband. Yeah, do you remember when at the beginning and she was dark because she'd been working in the fields and she didn't have time to tend her own garden, which was poetry for herself. Now she's ending saying, I do tend my own uh, vineyard. So... Whether the vineyard is literal or figurative here, we're not quite sure. But um, she tends it. She tends it. And he notices. 
Yes. And he appreciates it. Yes. So then he responds, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. And she says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And this completes this chiastic framework where we have the reverse parallelism, things that we saw in the beginning are repeated at the end because in the beginning, she says, take me away. She's attracted to him. She wants a relationship with him. And now in this enduring marriage covenant, she ends by saying, come away with me. And, and now they go on to the happily ever after. Yeah. With the tools to, to survive. Yes. The, the, the foxes yeah. that come in during the happily ever after. Yeah, the tools that have been laid out mm-hmm. in the practical application of all that we've read here that is difficult to maybe see mm-hmm. at first because it's poetry, because mm-hmm. it's thousands of years old, because some of it sounds weird. We don't call our man our brother. Right, right. We don't have our body parts likened to animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just keep in mind that scripture is is intended for all people at all times. Yeah. So culturally, you can read this and go, "Oh my gosh, what is this?" But dig, use your use your mind and dig into it and understand why God. And then when and just why God? Why would God think this? Why would God say this? Why would God? And and it's not. We can learn about him and we can learn his different creativity. And maybe he thinks that the only way we can really learn about sex is to do it in a poetry version because some of us, some of us would be going like this and other words would shut the door and others would just love it. So, you know, right. and all cultures at all times. So that's what's so creative about God. Well, and, and the beauty here is that, you know, we're not talking about an eternal relationship here. We're not talking about something overtly spiritual. No. But it still matters to God. Absolutely. He cares that much about our mortal lives here in this world, mm-hmm. about our our romantic relationships. That yeah, it wouldn't be in the inspired word of God if he didn't want us to, to take something from it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I hope that this has given you um, the tools, some starting knowledge, so that you're not afraid to, to go at this book to read it and to glean from it really great truths that God has for you, for your romantic relationship, your marriage, and really great truths that you can pass on to the next generation because these things have to be repeated. They have to be taught. Absolutely. So thank you all so much for being with us for these six episodes through Song of Solomon, and we look forward to seeing you back for more.